Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gusowski, here as usual with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you today? Great, how are you? Oh, uh, not too bad. Good to be back. Good, yes, yes, absolutely. We've got a number of things we want to talk about today. Number of films, and they're all recently arrived in theaters, on streaming, um, some more recent than others, and Courtney is going to start us off with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, something that has recently hit the theaters and has got people buzzing. Yes, what do you think? Um, I, I loved it. Um, this is a new film by Scorsese, um, and it's the adaptation of the novel of the same name by uh, David Gran. Um, and I would highly recommend um, if if the listeners get the chance to check out the not the the novel as well. Um, there's also an audio book version of it uh, for those who prefer audio book versions. And the story essentially recounts the Osage uh, murders that was were happening in Oklahoma in the 1920s. And what happened is the Osage people, this um, indigenous nation, their lands struck oil and they became very wealthy. And it was to the point where they were having um, servants and drivers who were actually people, you know, and they were living a good life. And then slowly people started to either disappear or a lot of people were dying. Some of them were murdered. Some were dying of rare illnesses and nothing was being investigated. So in the novel, it focuses on um, the the character of Molly Burkhart um, in the film. She's played by Lily Gladstone. And then the second part of the novel is about the FBI investigation, because this came about just as J. Edgar Hoover was starting the FBI. And then the third part of the novel is more of like, I guess, a modern look back and the ramifications of what those murders had on the indigenous community and just society as a whole. So what Martin Scorsese does is he takes that same template, but kind of flips it a bit. So the story actually is told from the point of view of Ernest Burkhart, Molly's husband, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And the film falls as he's coming into Osage after the war, and he's coming to visit his uncle, who's played by William, um, his uncle William, who's played by Robert De Niro. And while Lincoln Osage working for um, his uncle and kind of starting up a little taxi service, he meets Molly, they fall in love, they get married, and slowly he starts to learn about what's going on in Osage and how his uncle William is very interested in the headrights and what is basically like the land ownership that a lot of the um, indigenous community have. So when, let's say, someone's husband dies, conveniently, a member of the community, a white man, would be quick to marry the, the widow, because that puts him in a position of possibly getting access to the head rights. Um, and that is all I will say about the, the plot. But for about three and a half hours, you have Martin Scorsese doing what essentially he does best. Um, I can see why he would tell the story from Ernest's perspective, because a lot of what went down plays a lot into like the gangster's type of films that Scorsese 
is known for in the past. So you you are you're literally following evil people doing really bad things. And Ernest is a character who is doing some bad things, but is also convincing himself that his love for his wife um, will shield them from some of the bad things that's going around. Um, so you're kind of seeing this society, this community being, um, I don't want to say hunted, but being harped on by these, these predators that are living within them who are just greedy. All they want is money and oil. Um, and you're, you're seeing Molly as she is slowly coming to realization that there are dangerous people among the community. Um, and even her in her situation is trying to figure out how best to get help in a society where if you're indigenous, people don't care what, what happens to you. Um, so Scorsese goes full gusto with this. Um, the cast is phenomenal. You're going to see some cameo appearances from some actors that you would never expect to be in a Scorsese film. There's a couple of surprises, which I will not spoil. Um, I will say that Jesse Plemons shows up as the FBI agent who helps to kind of unfold that. And he is, he's really fantastic. And Lily Gladstone is amazing in, in this film. And then you have people like um, Tantu Cardinal show up and it's just a really good cast. And how he tells this story, I think he doesn't, I didn't get the sense that he was exploiting the story. Like I felt like he was really trying to take care it would have been interesting had it been told from Molly's perspective as within the book. But again, thinking back to how Scorsese handles gangster films, I could see why he would find the bad guys appealing. Also, um, what about the question of uh, Scorsese, white man? Could he, he, I mean, let's face it. If he had even attempted to tell it from Molly's point of view, right? There's yes. just no way you can do that in this day and age. He would have to be possibly the executive producer and let a filmmaker who could tell that story tell that story from that and point I, of view. Right? I can see that argument. And, and in some ways, I agree with that argument as well. Like a person like Scorsese could have easily used his clout to, to back a film um, mm -hmm. of this magnitude and have it be told from an indigenous perspective. And I think it would be really fascinating to see it from an indigenous perspective. I think that's why how we told it now, you really need the book as a good companion piece, in my opinion, to go along. Yeah, no, it sounds it. like he did a smart thing that mm -hmm. way. If he really wanted to direct it, then this is the way. Yeah, but I, I also feel that we should have films like this, of this scale, of this type of rhythm even if you're pulling from a gang hold from an indigenous perspective and i think part of it has to be on us the viewer as well because i've seen a lot of people on social media reacting um to it and the fact that scorsese is telling this story and a lot of these people who i see are reacting are the same people that when certain films come up by indigenous filmmakers even those in film twitter they conveniently don't put it to the priority of their list. You know, there's always some big American film that comes before it, you know, by a predominantly white director. And I think as a side, we all have to play our part. Like it would be great if an indigenous person told this story. And I think we should have other films about Osage told from the indigenous perspective. But I also think as film lovers, we need to support indigenous filmmakers when they're coming out with, with projects, bigger, bigger, small. 
Like we can't expect them to come out and get Scorsese style budgets. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, because the, the sadly the industry doesn't work that way. And I wish it did. Um, but as yeah. I said, I would love to see an indigenous take on this story. And I feel like there there could be. You could easily make someone could come up and make this film or a similar type of film from a different character's perspective, what have you, because it's it's such a sweeping and kind of haunting story that I would love to see um, more indigenous filmmakers tackling it. Again, it's just our, I guess the real question is, are they getting the chances and the access to do that? And until they do, at least mm-hmm. someone is telling a story that includes a perspective. Is that mm-hmm. even a, what I, I just said? I don't know. I haven't seen the well, film. So is that even yeah, valid? But I, <laughs> but I would say, and this is a truly a case. And for me, I think it's, the fact that it's Scorsese doing it um, and just, I felt like he put a certain level of care into it. Um, there's still a lot of flourish and stylistic things, but I never felt like I was sympathizing with any of the prominent white characters. And it's like, I was completely aware the entire time that these are the villains. Um, unlike, Wolf of Wall Street, where again, Wolf of Wall Street's a quote unquote cautionary tale. But there was a few times where I felt within Wolf of Wall Street, he was indulging in the excess of the DiCaprio character and all the debauchery that they were doing. Like they made the debauchery look fun, even though it's, you know, he's kind of wagging his finger saying, don't do that. Whereas in this one, at no point did I think, oh, well, you know, he's taking it easier making it look like it was fun it's like no these people are bad and you know the film also kind of ties in with this was occurring as the tulsa race rights were also happening in the states and there's this whole through line of how these things happen and then america whitewashes it and we never hear of it you know it's like decades later you learn about tulsa decades later you learn about Osage, right? And like there's, you know, this film kind of hits that on the head that this horrible thing is happening. Here are the people who are doing it. And the same people who are doing it know that this will get swept under the rug or they will flip the narrative. So I think um there's a lot of directors I would not want to see touch this at all. Um, but I think Scorsese, in my opinion, does a, a good job with it. Um, whether or not he's the right person for it, okay, we can debate, and I will leave that to the indigenous critics and film critics to really weigh in on. But I, for what this film is, I enjoyed it, and I think it's a, a really good companion piece to the book. Hmm. And as a Scorsese fan, what would you say to a Scorsese fan? A uh, Scorsese fan, I think we'll we'll see it regardless. Yeah. Um, I, 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 like, I mean, there's... With, with Scorsese, you're one of those people that think that even a bad Scorsese film has some interesting aspects to it. Um, you know, I've made it known that I'm not a fan of Gangs of New York. Um, you know, I think Gangs of New York is <laughs> yes. just terrible. Okay, but uh, I would tell anyone, like, I'd rather watch this uh, multiple times than sit through Gangs of New York, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, again, I guess your mileage with Scorsese will depend on how much you love him. I think if you're a fan of Scorsese um, and whether or not this is his last film, I don't know, but he 
I think he takes some risk with this one, which is kind of fascinating to see a director, his stature and dare I say his age is still making really interesting works, whether you agree with them or not. Hmm. I like the risk, uh, the the idea that uh, a filmmaker is taking a risk. Mm-hmm. That That's always enticing. And yeah, I mean, I don't think I count myself amongst like the biggest Scorsese fans, but I'm a fan. So I think what you said has got me certainly interested, especially seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. If if you if you can, um, I believe it's Apple Films that distributed it. So if you can't see it in the screen or you don't have the three and a half hours to to spare, um, I think at some point it will probably land on Apple TV. But if you can make the trip to the screen, the big screen, and for me it didn't feel that long. Um, I was checking my watch just to see when certain things would come in. Just like, oh, the Dr. Brown and books such and such would happen, or they yeah. haven't got to this yet. And sure enough, like on the hour mark, boom, they introduced that. I'm like, oh, okay. So it was in many <laughs> ways, that's how I was kind of keeping track of the time. Cause it's like, oh, this thing's introducing now. I'm like, okay, we're in, we're at hour two now, we're in hour three kind of thing. So, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, I haven't read the book. So when I see it, it'll be interesting because I won't be doing that right and yes, you yes. i know i remember from dune like i had read dune like many years before but you read it before you saw um the oh, latest the, the, yes the latest one yeah yeah and uh so like in terms of what happened when and how it was adapted we had different reactions um which i think is always interesting to compare right mm-hmm. yeah, so, yeah i don't always um read the the novels beforehand um but when i do sometimes if it's still fresh in my head i'll instinctively just kind of have that comparison um yeah going like similar with yeah. uh, dumb money earlier this year um but there's a film that i know we both saw that also relates to novels um by an author whose novels i admit i have never read um but do you want to talk about uh the pigeon tunnel the new errol morris film Okay, well, I'm going to admit the same thing. I have never um, read John Le Carre's novels, and I do know, like fans, big big fans. I am married to a big big fan of John yeah, Le Carre. My, my cousin's a big fan of his as well. I remember seeing all the books on his shelf. Yeah, yeah, I've got them all on my shelf. They, so now they're waiting for me, right? Possibly to read. Um, so John Le Carre, best known as. A, you know, the, the author of thrillers, especially spy thrillers, spy novels. And this is a documentary about him, about his life, about a little bit about his career, uh, both as an author and as a spy. He worked as a spy before he started um, writing his uh, novels. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing to me, the reason I wanted to see it was because it's a documentary by Errol Morris. And Errol Mor- Morris, people, of course, will think of The Thin Blue Line, you know, one of the quintessential documentaries of our time. Well, of all time, since since film is a new, newer um, art form. Uh, so it's, you know, it's one of those, you know, you have to see The Thin Blue Line. It's one of those kinds of films. but And uh, so whether you're a fan or not of Errol Morris, it, it, it's interesting. 
it'll be interesting for you to to watch these two come together because Errol Moore's made has made a reputation of being not just like an in-depth sort of like interviewer, but he's known as an interrogator, which takes on this really interesting edge in the hands of John le Carré. And John le Carré, that is a, a, you know, there's a fancy French word for it, nom de plume. And in fact, you know what? Silly me, I didn't write down the the man's actual name. (laughs) John le Carré is his uh, pen name. Um, but anyway, so the individual, but we're going to call him John Le Carre anyway. Uh, um, so what happens when, right from the beginning of the film, John Le Carre seems to like turn it back onto Errol Morris. And Errol Morris seems to participate in this turning it back on, on him, the interviewer, in, him, the interrogator, um, because the subject of this film wants to know more about who is interrogating him. What more spy novel kind of setup do you want? All you have to know is who the subject is, right? And then this happens. And immediately that got me thinking about, okay, what's going on in terms of the dynamic of this? And as I was watching the film and as I, as they were going through the different details, and this is a Talking Heads documentary in some ways, but it also, in when it comes to certain novels and bringing up certain autobiographical details, it's filling in the details of this individual's life through focusing on, well, this happened in this book and this character in this book, and how does that character reflect you? And it's sort of like using the art form of writing to create the character of our documentary subject. And they're using clips from films, film adaptations. So talk about a film adaptation of a book. It's using clips of those adaptations to fill in the imagery, right? So it's like a talking head with technically, in a way, archival, but creative, but in the context of this film, it's sort of reenactment footage, right? So it starts like it started to take on all these layers, even though it's got the simplest of constructions, which is, of course, the genius of Errol Morris. There's my two yeah. cents. Yeah, it's it's true, and it's um, before I'll, I'll say my two bits. I I did look up the name, and it's David John Moore Cronwell. So David Cronwell is. The, yes. the birth my name apologies. of John the No, no, it's I. When you said it, I couldn't remember it as well because you're so used to the 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 pen name. Um, one of the things I find fascinating about Eremos in general is he makes these really captivating films that kind of cross genres. Um, I read an interview I think he did with POV Magazine where he talked about how he doesn't like his films being called documentaries, even though. When we watch them, we associate them with documentaries because he's doing so many different things. He just sees it as as straight film. Um, and th- I found the the reenactments were were quite fascinating, and the way how Morris was questioning the subject, but the subject is fully aware of who Morris is and his style, and almost had his guard up, but not in a way that he was being standoffish. But no, just he, kind of pointing yeah. out, like, well, why do you need to know this? There, I don't deem this as 
interesting aspect of my life. Why would you deem it as an, and, you know, and kind of turning the table on the interview, it was, it was really fascinating film. Um, I, I quite enjoyed it. It's not my favorite Morris film. Um, I, I think I had a stronger reaction to some of his other ones um, mm. or this one, but it's still a solid entry yeah. into, into but his I, channel. I, I highly recommend it. I, I appreciate this one and I do recommend it highly as well because it, of the playfulness, the back and forth between the two of them. Mm-hmm. It, they're both playing with each other. It's like cat and mouse, but who in, in, during, during which moment is one the mouse and one the cat? You know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they seem to uh, it seems to go back and forth that relationship, the cat and the mouse quest- questioning each other. Uh, and it's like the meeting of equals. It's not an interviewer and an interviewee in the most conventional sense. Mm-hmm. Because this is someone who's participating fully in the construction. And I'm going to now find a, my weird way of segueing into the next film. Because this made me think of Anatomy of a Fall in terms of how people construct their own realities. I fully felt like John le Carré was constructing a version of himself, constructing a version of his reality. And I like, and I would recommend it for people who have no idea what his novels are about, but have never read his stuff. Um, but the segue into Anatomy of a Fall is the idea of people in life. Eventually, you come to a point where your concept of reality, your concept of an event just rests on what you decide in the end is the version that you're going to believe in. And the reason it's it's so instrumental in Anatomy of a Fall is that Anatomy of a Fall revolves around the death of a man who fell out of a window in his house. And the, the whole film is then trying to figure out, did he fall? Was it suicide? Or was he pushed by his wife? And his wife is on trial. And his wife is played like incredibly by Sandra Huller. And she, she, a lot of people have been talking about her since the film premiered at Cannes and since it won the, the big prize at Cannes, right? Um, Justin Triette is the filmmaker who does this incredible job of not only keeping us, she has this firm grip on the film and, but toys with us as well in terms of then allowing us, like she leads us down into a certain belief of what happened. And then she sort of opens things up and makes us question what we just decided. Right. So it's like going down a corridor and there's a turn and then you go, okay, now I know where I am. And, but you're in a maze. Right. Then it's like, well, no, no, you have to go this way now, but wait a minute. That's no, that's the way. No, that's the way. No, that's the way. And so this murder mystery on top of all that becomes this investigation into their marriage. Like as more details come out, as we learn more about the wife and more and more is revealed about her relationship with her husband and the family dynamic, they have a son, more and more is revealed, then it becomes this sort of like forensic investigation of a marriage, of a family dynamic. And in the end, 
I'm I'm only going to spoil it in the sense that you have to decide in the end. That that's yeah, right? and that's uh, I wouldn't even say that's she gives you clues, uh, right? She gives you clues. I wouldn't even say yeah. I wouldn't say it's a spoiler because the way how the the film progresses, like as a murder mystery, it leaves it for you to kind of put the the clues together and then as a courtroom drama they put you in the the jury box um chair and i think one of the things that i really found fascinating about this film is the way how it causes you as a jury to have your perspectives change as new information is revealed um and as you're seeing the marriage kind of slowly crumble and you're getting all this other information your views are constantly shifting um and and how it plays out to whether or not it would push someone to murder or would that push someone to take their own life and it reminded me of the time when i was on jury duty and just the fact that how people's lives get essentially exposed their 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 worst moments their darkest moments get exposed for a bunch of strangers and at the end of the day, the strangers get up, go home, but those people's entire life has been left bare. And it's just kind of like, okay, you know, when things are done, you still have to pick up all the pieces. And also knowing full well that your life has been ripped to shreds in front of random strangers. And those strangers get to pass judgment and then go on their way and never think of you again. Like that that kind of fleeting nature of all of this really, really stuck with me. And I think overall, it was just a wonderful film the Fuller's performance is is great um the actor that played her son uh, milo machado granier uh, who plays her oh, son daniel incredible, eh? he, yeah. he was really really he good just, uh, he just tore he tore me like like absolutely gut-wrenching there were times when i was just i couldn't believe the the performance he gave as well sorry i interrupted you but no no that's no no it's you know that was my point like he's he is great, and I think he also adds to it as well because you have him playing a son who is learning so much about his parents. Like, as, you know, children only know a certain view of their parents as much as their parents want to let them in. And he gets to see all the stuff, hear about all the, the things that are occurring around him that he didn't have any clue of. And just how, and some of it is awful. Like there's certain recordings played and whatnot. And then there's also some sharp commentary on the legal system in general and how if you are accused of something, whether or not you, whether or not you, if you did it is not the, the point. The point is if you're in front of the prosecution, the prosecution's job is to make sure that you get sent to jail. The defendant's job is to make sure that they try and keep you out of jail. So you you see theories being thrown at the wall and people in the courtroom kind of behind their head and agreeing, even if there's no basis, there's no proof, um, you know, they're going down certain rabbit holes that are absolutely ludicrous, but it's, it's treated with the same level of um, intensity and intellectual um, dissection as something where you actually have hard facts or at least circumstantial facts. So it's, it's, this film does a lot. And I think it masterfully ties it all together in a really um, interesting, interesting way. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. This is uh, definitely one of the films of the year. 
Mm-hmm. So you're going to close out the, the show? Yes, okay, I will talk something. about a, another film that um, similar to Anatomy of Fall premiered at TIFF um, and it just hit theaters recently and it's a film called Butcher's Crossing. It stars Nicolas Cage and it was directed by Gabe um, Polsky and it's a really interesting film about a young man who has essentially dropped out of his Ivy League school and um, the character's name is Will Andrews and he's played by Fred um, Heckinger. My apologies if I mispronounce that name but Will essentially has left his Ivy League school and at the opening of the film he's writing his father to say he's dropped out of school because he wants to experience America essentially outside of Harvard and um, you know really wants to see what it is to be a real man in, in the world not just a intellectual who goes to some cushy job and he finds himself um essentially at this kind of town outpost where he meets Nicolas Cage and he basically convinces Nicolas Cage to take him on a hunt and Nicolas Cage has been dreaming about this particular um bison hunt where you could get a lot of great bison skin um that would be able to be sold um because the local fur trader his his quality isn't the best according to um cage's character and um cage's character his name is miller and miller feels that he knows where the the best uh, bison is but you have to go deep into the colorado mountains and it's a very treacherous um trail so page or sorry miller and will get this small group of let's force them together and they go to this place um one of the guys who's part of the crew fred is basically telling them that miller's been off his rockers for several years he keeps talking about this colorado thing i don't know it's a little dangerous but he's paying me so i'll go anyway they get to the place, and it turns out that through all the hard trip tracking, they're they're actually buffaloes and bisons there, and there's they're in the plenty. But then things start to change because Miller isn't just happy with getting one or two of the bison. He essentially is slowly kind of going mad out there in the wilderness, and he wants to conquer them all. Um, and as you're seeing this occur, and him constantly trying to to shoot. And the men are starting to lose resources. Um, the weather is starting to change and they need to get out of there before they get caught in a storm. And also when it comes to skinning bison, Fred's like the master skinner, but even he can only do so much. And he's like, if the body is still warm, it makes it easier to skin for the, the pelt. But if you keep killing all these bison, then they're going to be staying there in the cold, freezing, and it's going to make it a lot tougher. So a lot of the film is watching these men navigate this tough terrain as they eventually get stuck there through the the winter. And you're seeing essentially nature kind of playing with their minds and Fred, or sorry, Miller going through his own weird, I don't know, it reminds me a lot of Apocalypse Now and uh, the Marlon Brando character of like that kind of sense of madness Right, yeah. That's that, that's creeping in. And I feel like this film tries to go for that at times and also tries to offer like a really poetic 
um, look at the nature of man and also how man keeps pillaging nature for his own pride. Um, because there's talk about the indigenous communities also hunting these um, bison, but they've been hunting them for years. And as you see, there's they're plentiful. They only take what they need. They think whereas you have the white guy and the white man coming in and just wanting to decimate everything for their own supposed wealth. Um, I don't think the film works completely the way it's intended to. Um, I think the trips into madness don't necessarily go as far enough. And the the poetic moments hit, but they don't quite hit with the, the impact that they really should. And I think it's probably because they're trying to balance this whole is Miller crazy? Is Will starting to go crazy? But maybe Miller's not that crazy. Maybe he's just evil and greedy. Like it's, you know, it's a really fine line it walks. The performances are, are quite good. Um, Nicholas Cage is, I would say, on a bit of a roll of late. He's he's had some really great performances. He had this one and um, Dream Scenario, which is coming out later in the year. I think he's absolutely fantastic in that. So Cage is, is definitely back. I just wish that this film kind of nailed the the haunting beats a bit more than it does. Uh, and I thought, and I wish that the poetic moments allowed you to linger a bit more because by the time the film ends. There's a lot of stuff at the very end of the film that talks about the history of um, the buffalo and bison hunting and how, you know, there were so many in nature at one point and now the numbers have went window down. So it's very much like an environmental message at the end, which I, I wish that they had weaved in a bit more in the poetic moments. Um, so it's I think Butch Crossing is an interesting film and it's worth a look. I just don't think it quite hits the the moves that it was really striving for right but for a nicholas cage fan of which there are many uh i i, I would say see if you're a nicholas cage fan um even if you're not it's if you're one of those people that don't like nicholas cage this is probably a nicholas cage film you will enjoy uh, but having said that dream scenario is coming out soon and if there's one nicholas cage film i would say you gotta see like make appointment viewing is dream scenario just because he really he goes to the gusto and nails it here. And here he's he's very good. But I think the nature of his role, even though he's captured descending into madness, it's still far more restrained than what goes on in, in dream scenario. Mm, okay. So something to look forward to as uh, as releases keep rolling out, right? As the mm -hmm. stuff that uh, we've seen at festivals and other stuff uh, uh, keeps coming. Yeah, and, and as we said, like even with award season, yeah, yeah, even with the, you know those titles that we're talking about, these are all four really unique titles. So it's something for almost everyone. Yeah. Oh, and I should mention, I don't think we mentioned this that uh, Pigeon Tunnel is on Apple TV Plus at the moment. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it's in a theater, but double check me because it might be at the Bell Lightbox, and it might be available at the hot dog cinema in november mm -hmm. so yeah but you can definitely catch it on um apple, apple yeah. tv yeah otherwise go to the cinemas and check out the good stuff there yeah, yeah uh, we're one in a thing good, that good time of year yeah one thing that i was reminded of when when i went to tiff it's like wait a minute it's much better to be in a cinema 
<laughs> the movies are much more magic. <laughs> yes, yes. The magic really pops off. You don't get the same thing at home. Even even if you have like one of those big theater screens at yeah. home, sometimes you you need the uh, the crowd with you to hit all the same marks that you're hitting and you know laugh or shriek at this at the same moments. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. So uh, we've come to another edition of Frameline. And for Courtney Small, I'm Barbara Gosowski. Thank you for listening.